I'm Rick Schunkweiler. I'm the senior minister at White Oak, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today as we dive into this next section in the book of Romans. But we started with the Cannonball Generosity Initiative because we're on a two-year trip as a White Oak Christian church. We wanted you to be aware of this initiative, and it's all about transformation. And man, if Will and Beth Mueller are not poster kids for that transformation, I don't know who they are. Will's up here playing drums on Sunday morning. Beth and the kids are all throughout our Ross campus. And and I love to see the way in which God's working in their lives and transforming them more and more into who he wants them to be. Because the Cannonball Generosity Initiative is not just about raising money, but it is about transformation. And we wanted to share part of that story with you today because we are challenged to be stewards of the resources that God's given to us. And that's what Cannonball is about. How am I a good steward? So sacrifice means giving up something I love for something I love more. And what I love more is seeing people come to Jesus, seeing people learn about him, seeing people have a future where they didn't have that before. Thursday morning, about 1.30 in the morning, a group of us gathered at the Coleraine building this week because we did a live stream with our church in India. And we did a groundbreaking in a little town called Bagapali, India in Karnataka State. Bagapali is a little town. There's only about 150,000 people living in it. I mean, that's a little town in India. You have to be aware of that. And, and we work in 40 villages around Bagapali, and we are constructing our 12th building there. That's a part of Cannonball Generosity around the world. Cannonball Generosity is also a part of the food, or excuse me, the, the clothing pack for Niger that you're going to be a part of. Please jump in and make waves there. But it's also a part of what we are doing right here in Ross as we seek to build a building just north on 27. You can drive past that that property, and and we are in the midst of all the planning and challenges that take place there. So I want you to pray, and that you would jump in and make waves. If you'd like to find out more about Cannonball, you can email me, or you can check out our website, whiteoakcannonball.com. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Father, we can do that individually, but when we come together as a church, as we come before your throne, as Darren and the worship team lead us in in worship songs, as we think about your presence in our lives, we pray, Lord, that today that you would bless us, that you would teach us, and that you would guide us as we study. Thank you, Lord, for, for... trusting us, entrusting us with these amazing resources. And may we be good stewards of those. Father, I pray now for those in our, in our midst who are struggling. Father, I know we got a phone call just a bit ago about one of, our, one of our folks whose mother has had a heart attack. And we pray for strength for the family as they're traveling to be with her. I pray, Lord, for healing. I pray, Lord, for comfort. I pray, Lord, for your presence to be there. Father, I thank you that you're here today, that you do not abandon us in the midst of the turmoil and the trials that we face. And I pray, Lord, today that you will teach us more about your love and grace for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're in the midst of this journey in the book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. And we're in chapters 4 and 5 today, but I wonder if we fast forward 100 years, what communication will be like? I mean, will we still need 144 characters to send a tweet 100 years from now? Or or will we still be writing out letters? I mean, will we have thought-to-thought communication 
So you don't have to come to church. You just, I'm just thinking of my sermon and we're wired somehow and my sermon comes into your mind. That would be great. No, that'd be awful, really. I mean, you'd be trying to do something, probably eating lunch and I'm shoot the sermon to you. Let's think about that for a while. That's just plain weird. But then so is talking into this little bitty thing that you do on the weekdays, right? Communication has really changed over the years. And I, I just, you know, I want you to be aware of that. Nancy and I celebrated our 45th anniversary in August. And when we were dating, we dated for about a year, year and a half. And we, I was in college. She was already working as a nurse. And we would send letters back and forth to each other. How many of you in your dating time sent letters? I mean, real letters where you wrote them out. How many of you did that? You notice how many of us have gray hair that did that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, she sent me two or three a week. And if we had just saved the postage, if she hadn't sent it to it, we'd be millionaires today. Guaranteed. I sent her way more letters than she sent to me. And, uh, uh, and you know, I, we also called long distance. How many of you remember long distance? Yeah. How many of you remember collect calls? Yeah, the rest of you are going, what is he talking about? <laughs> well, we would be multimillionaires if we had saved all of our collect phone calls. I just wanted to show you, I have proof that I mailed more letters to Nancy than she did to me. Here's my video. You can tell it's real because it's in black and white. That's when we, de- we dated during the black and white era, right? But, but the challenge of writing letters in the first century was great. And that's what's going on here. That's the communication form that was used. They couldn't pick up a phone, couldn't just simply send a text. They had to actually write a letter whenever there was a question that's going on. And so Paul has written this letter of Romans to the Romans from a place called Corinth. And it would take weeks to get from one place to another. They, they would often have to explain those particular letters as they go along. And so in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we meet the person that Paul sends the letter with. Her name's Phoebe. She is a, 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 a disciple of Jesus, and she's one that he has entrusted to read the letter, to explain the letter, and to answer any questions, which is pretty unique. Here's where uh, they were at that point in time in Corinth. Corinth's right here. Rome is up here. It's about 1,360 miles between the two. So you see that not only does Phoebe have to go there, but she has to cross this, uh, the, the Adriatic Sea. She is quite the heroine in the midst of this story. There's only two verses for her in 16, chapters one, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> but she's the one who explains. And what would happen is they would start to read the letter, and somebody would say, wait, wait, I don't quite understand that part. And she would explain the part that they were in. Sometimes she would embellish a bit as she was reading along too. Very important kind of way in which they communicated in that first century. And and I am just amazed at uh, Phoebe and her capabilities. I want to encourage you as you're trying to get through the, the Roman letter, we're just looking at a few verses each week. And so you can listen to our talks online at thewocc.com backslash sermons. 
I also want to encourage you, you don't have to necessarily sign up to be a part of Jack's lectures each, each time that he's here. He'll be here three times. Just check that out of the program and come on down to Coleraine this week on uh, Tuesday and listen to Jack. Jack himself is kind of a walking miracle. Uh, about six months ago, he was diagnosed with cancer and had very, very devastating cancer in his abdomen. He's now cancer-free. I mean, God has been amazing. And so you want to come and listen to Jack as, as he teaches as well. You know, you can also jump into a life group, see Chris or others around here. Get into a life group and study this particular book. I want to jump into one of the most important sections of of Romans. It's chapter 4 and 5 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 4. Or if you have it on your electronic device, go ahead and bring that up. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And there are Bibles at the hub. Just pick one up there as you leave today. uh, Because there are a variety of ways in which you could be reading this. Paul writes this letter because there's a problem. There's a problem in this first century church because there's, there's just this squabble going on between the Jewish Christians and the Roman Christians. The Jewish Christians saw themselves as privileged and that they should be leading the church because they have been a part of God's kingdom all the way along. The Roman Christians who are Gentiles have said, wait a minute, you got kicked out of Rome in 49 AD. We've been leading the church since that time. It's been about five years. And, and we're not going to give up that position. God has called us to this. And you can kind of sit on the side. And so they're squabbling over privilege and power at this point. I want to give you just a bit of background to that problem too. You see, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was not the Apostle Paul at that point in time. Early on, we read in the book of Acts about Paul uh, as, as he's going out to persecute the church, because you see, he was, a, he was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He was an individual that saw relationship with God based upon the law, the Old Testament law, and that it would only be the Jews who would be able to worship the Messiah that was coming, and he was not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, he saw Jesus and his followers as enemies to Judaism. And so he's going from town to town with letters from the, from the Sanhedrin saying that he could persecute, that he could kill, that he could call out and arrest any Christians. Because they were walking against the Jewish religion, so he believed. He's on the road to Damascus one time, and Damascus is still the Damascus that's in the news today. When you read about Syria and it talks about Damascus, that's the town he was going to in the first century. And as he's on his way, he meets Jesus. Jesus appears to him, talks to him, and says, Paul, you're going the wrong direction. It is such a transformative experience that Paul goes into Damascus. He's blinded, and and he comes out of that experience. He's baptized into Christ, immersed into Christ, and he becomes the preacher to the Gentiles. Only God would have this ironic sense of humor that he would take the one who hated Gentiles in the first place, hated the church in many, many ways, and make him the premier church planter among the people that he hated the most. Only God could do that. And so that's, what, that's Paul's background. And so when he hears about the squabble that's going on in Rome that seeks to derail the church, he writes this letter. He says, guys, guys, I need to explain to you what grace is. I need to explain to you what is going on. I need to explain this so that we're not fighting each other. Instead, we're reaching people for Jesus. And so that's what's going on here in the book of Romans. And and he's challenging both of them to be aware that while the Jews weren't in leadership at this point in time and the Gentiles were not law keepers, 
both of them could realize in the kingdom of God that they could say, I am not left out. That's our big idea today. I'm not left out. I want you to turn to the person beside you and say, I'm not left out. Ready? Go. Now I want you to say it like you mean it. I am not left out. Do it again. Okay, I'm not left out. Because I think most of us here are Gentiles. Most of us don't have a Jewish ethnicity background in our lives. And so if we were in the first century, the question would be, can the Gentiles even be a part of anything that God's doing? And what Paul says is you're not left out of the family of God. He says you're not left out of salvation. You're not left out of eternal life. You're not left out of forgiveness. You're not left out of the grace of God. And I need to tell you why that's true here in this fourth chapter. Realize as a letter, there were no chapter breaks at the time. And so Paul is continuing to read, to, uh, to report to the church. Phoebe is reading this letter and she's just read at the end of the third chapter that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that was like slapping a Jew in the face. Wait, we've been a part of the family of God all along. And for the Gentile, they're going, I know we were rejected, but this idea of sin, that's hard and harsh. And so he moves right on into the fourth chapter and says, no, no, but you can be a part of the family of God. He reminds them that they are not left out. Have you ever felt left out? I mean, maybe on the playground when you were a kid. Do you remember not being picked? You remember standing there in the lines and, and they're going down the line and you continue to stand there? Remember the time maybe that they were choosing for the play or for the chorus and you weren't picked? Remember the time maybe in college that you were put on a team for a project and you weren't picked to lead the project? You were just one of the worker bees? Maybe in your own work you've seen those places where you've been passed over for promotion. You were left out. Have you ever stood at a chain link fence and looked through and know that you can't go on the other side? That's what was going on in Rome. What was going on in Rome is that the Gentiles made the Jews stand outside the chain link fence and what the Jews made the Gentiles stand outside the chain link fence. And Paul is saying, there is no fence. Let me tell you about that. Let me show you how that's true. But there is no fence. And he tells them there are four reasons that they're not left out. The first reason is this, because of my faith in God. You see, because of my faith in God, I'm not left out of the family. There, there's, you see, the struggle here is the Jews believed they were in because they were people of the law and they have all of this history that's in the Old Testament it says over and over again, we're part. And God had given them his special revelation. They were children of Abraham and so they thought they had the privilege of being his people. And the Gentiles thought, no, 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 we've come along. You guys got kicked out by uh, Claudius because you were rabble-rousers and we are the ones... So Paul says, no, no, you're a people of God because you believe in the one who can forgive sin. He starts in verse 1. He says this, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. Takes him all the way back for the Jews. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, but that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. You see, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. 
Remember we talked about in chapter 3 that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That Paul has laid the foundation that none of us are worthy. Now he's going to say, here's how you get in. Here's what I want you to see. There's no boasting because it's not about our works. It's not because I do something better than you do that I'm accepted into the kingdom of God. It's neither privilege or power that makes us able to stand before God. But, and that's what the scripture says right here. It says, not because of your works. So, so you couldn't be standing up and say, well, my parents were a part of this church, or I've given so much money to this church, or I've been a part of the leadership team. It's not because of our works that we are accepted in. So if it's not about our works, whose work is it? And Scripture goes on and says, it's God's. It's God's work. We are powerless. Remember it says very simply there at the bottom, He forgives sinners. Sinners means separated from God. And so Paul has written this letter, says all of you were separated from God. Not just all of you, but all y'all for the southern part of Judaism, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, everybody was, a, was separated. And now he says, but God brings us together. And how does God do that? He says, very simply, this next little section, I like what he says. He counts as righteousness their faith in God. He counts as righteousness their faith in God. He says, this is even true all the way through the Old Testament, that Abraham didn't stand on his works. Abraham stood on his faith. It was God who did the work. Abraham is accepted because he believed God and the promises of God. Not our works, not our love, not even the fruit of our faith, but our faith itself is counted as righteousness. God declares us righteous as we stand with him because we trust in another, not ourselves, to keep the law. So I am not left out. I'm not left out because of my faith. The second thing that he says is I'm not left out because of my relationship with God. The argument in Rome was, I'm right because of my privilege, or I'm right because I'm standing in power. But Paul calls out both sides saying, it's only the relationship with God that brings us into right standing with him. He goes on and writes this at the end of chapter 4, verse 22. Is that right? Yeah, 22, he says this. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. For he was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Notice how he starts out, and he says very simply, the stories that you have in the Old Testament, in the Torah, were given to us so that we could be sure that this is how God has always handled people. He's always handled people by faith. He's always been gracious towards them. Some of you have probably heard there's a different God in the Bible. There's the Old Testament God, and then there's this New Testament God. And yet what Paul is saying is it's the same God. He's always been gracious. He used the Old Testament time to prepare the world for his son to come, and he uses us in this New Testament time to declare his son has come. And so he says very simply, God counted as righteous, not for Abraham's benefit, but for ours as well. And, and what is it that he's talking about here? He's saying very simply that I give you this so that you could be sure. Notice what it says right in the middle of that text. It says, to assuring us. That, that's, that, you can stand firm on the promise of God. 
Paul is very bold here. I can just imagine Phoebe as she says that. Somebody waves their hand and says, Assured? What do you mean assured? Well, because Jesus did the work. Notice the work that he did. He, he died because of our sins. Back to chapter 3. All of sin and falls short of the glory of God. Jesus steps in, dies for our sins, pays our penalty. Why? To make us right with God. Wow, Paul puts all that together. Phoebe's standing there reading it. People are going, hey, pay attention, pay attention. All of us are sinners. We are long away from God. But God brings us together because of our faith in him who raised the one who died on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. Paul says Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He paid what we owed. It's not when God looks at us and he looks at us just as if we never sinned. No, what God does when he sees us is he looks at us as if we have paid the penalty for our sin. And Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be united with him. Jesus makes us right with God. When we put our faith in him, when we are immersed into Christ, we go from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven. That, that's what God does at that point in time. As a Christ follower, you do not have to keep looking over your shoulder to see if you're about to be punished. No, I am not left out. Third thing that, that he says here is because I received a free gift. See, it's a free gift. I did not earn it. I did not work for it. None of you did as well. And that, that keeps us from boasting. That keeps us from some kind of hierarchy in the church, in the family. We are a family together. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It says, because of our faith, Christ was brought excuse me, has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. See those words again? <clears throat> Go back to the slide, would you? There you go. Undeserved privilege. That's another way of saying grace. I didn't deserve it. Remember the argument that was going on between power and privilege? Jews said we're privileged because of our ethnicity. The Romans said we're privileged because of our power. We're in charge. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says neither one of you are right. You get this undeserved privilege that God brings you into the family. And he carries you along. The real privilege is undeserved. And it's given by Jesus. That's grace. And we stand there and we rejoice. But, but notice there are some practical applications, some practical benefits to being forgiven by God. It's not just this hocus-pocus religious conversation that goes on. Here's what Paul says in the next section. He says this in verses 3 and 4. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. None of you have problems and trials, right? So this passage is not for you. Yeah, right. Here we are. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Confident hope of salvation. Notice the things that it does because we don't boast it's not our own. It helps us develop endurance. The challenge when we run into to difficulties. See, one of the things that happens sometimes you become a Christian, you go, oh man, life ought to be a bowl of cherries now. Real easy. Instead, I still have a bowl of pits, right? I mean, you have all the challenges that come along. Here's the deal. When you face struggles and challenges as a Christian, it's not to eliminate those. It is to tell you that there's somebody who's walking along with you so that you can develop endurance. You can develop strength of character. You can have a confident hope. 
Not, not a hope that stands above people, but a hope that walks with people. See, we're not better than anybody around us. We're forgiven of our sins. We're given the Holy Spirit. But we can walk with people through their difficulties as well. That's what goes on. Paul's saying, you guys, you guys, this is what develops. Endurance, strength of character, and confident hope. The question is, as you are a follower of Jesus, are these things happening in your life? Are, are you sure when you run into those struggles? I mean, this is a wide-eyed reality of life. The struggles will come along. And what are those trials? What are those challenges? <laughs> there are any tests to your faith. They could be trials from a loss of health. Maybe you've had a cancer diagnosis. Maybe there's a heart issue. Maybe there's something there that, that is different than it was before. You know, for those of us who are moving well into our 60s, who were athletes when we were in our teens and 20s, there's all kinds of things that go on in the morning. Right? Some things don't go on in the morning. You know, it's like, okay, I think I can get up now. Check in with all the body parts. Okay, we're ready. Right? I mean, that's, that's a challenge. Maybe it's trials and broken or strained relationships. Maybe your kids are struggling with you. And maybe there's a challenge with your spouse. Those kinds of things begin to shake our faith a bit. Maybe it's vocational hardships and disappointments. I really thought I was going to get that appointment. I really thought I would get that um, advancement. I really thought, God, where are you? I really thought I'd still have this job. Maybe it's trials and accidents or natural disasters. Maybe it's trials and verbal and physical assaults. Maybe it's just the simple, everyday inconveniences of stoplights on Coleraine Avenue. Every time I drive out here, the lights are red. I go, God, I have important news to take out there. He goes, you are impatient. I need to develop endurance. I need to develop strength of character and confidence hope. I said, well, then make sure there's no cops in the way. (laughs) Those challenges come along. They're normal, not abnormal. And that's what God's developing in my life. Endurance, strength of character, confidence of hope. You want those things in your life? Let me tell you, it's a dangerous prayer because there will be trials and there will be predicaments and there will be challenges because that's how God builds us. So how are we going today? How are we doing today when things go bad for us? Do we rest in the grace of God and experience joy in God and keep loving people? Or do we forget the grace of God, overflow with complaining and become self-absorbed and critical instead of loving? See, that's what God wants to develop in us. He says, I'll walk with you through these difficulties so we can develop endurance, strength of character, and confident hope. Do you have that today? You can have that today as you step into Jesus, as you listen to him, because I am not left out. And the fourth thing is this, I can be sure. I am sure. I can stand here on a very strong foundation because of what God has done on my behalf. I want to say this to you. If you're a Christian, God really means for you to have the assurance that you're going to inherit the glory of God. You're going to go to heaven when you die, not hell. And you're going to be a part of God's perfect future kingdom. You're going to be there with Christ in his kingdom and live forever in the new heavens and new earth with unbroken joy and no affliction. The truth of verse 5 is that God gives us that assurance through the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in verse 5. 
And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This is the new thing in the New Testament, by the way. The Old Testament people of God did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They did not have God's presence living in them. They often had God's presence around them. They often saw the evidence of God's presence. But in the New Testament, we are promised the presence of God in us. The Holy Spirit will take up residence in us. Because Paul knows there are several challenges to our assurance. One is just simply that we're afraid we're hypocrites. And that there'll be something that we're, we've, we've faked it all the way along. And what, what Paul's saying here is that God proves out. He tests our faith so that we can know strongly with the trials that we're facing that we develop endurance, strength of character, and comforting hope. We have that complete hope. But there's another enemy to our assurance. What if the object of our faith is false? I mean, we go through all the difficulties. We go through the struggles. We thought God loved us, but it turns out he doesn't. He may not even exist. That, too, is an obstacle to our great assurance. But here's what he says. That he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. I want to rest on that for just a moment today. Paul's answer here is not an argument as to why we can be sure. It's not another fact. Paul's using an experience here. He says simply that your hope is rooted in the genuineness of your proven faith. It will not disappoint you because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and has begun to pour the love of God experientially into your heart. You should be growing as a loving person as you are experiencing God's love in your life. That's, that's a dynamic prayer. That this personal experience of God's love flooding your heart with this immediate sense of God's reality and love. You see, I think we live as Western Christians too much in looking for fact, looking for evidentiary proof. And what God is saying, I want this to fill you. I, I want you to know that I'm praying for you as we go through this, this book of Romans, that God would increase this experience in our lives that we would recognize the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the, God is flooding his life, that he makes it un, re, unmistakable in us. There's a great movement of the Spirit in us and among us to give not only the assurance that our faith is genuine, but it is well-founded with the love of God in us. That's why as I'm driving in, and you probably had this same kind of thing happen too, as I'm driving in, I'm listening to the song that says, May I be an example to others so that they, when they see me, they see Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. The love of God in my heart is expressed to others as that goes along. As you pray, don't count it strange when afflictions come, because they will. But rejoice and exalt in the love of God, because he will use them to temper the steel of your faith and confirm in your hearts that you are indeed a child of God. And I am reminded, I am not left out. You know, this morning is a special time. Because we have four individuals who are saying, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want, I'm going to be baptized today. We're going to witness that. And Acts 2.38 says this, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And listen to how that passage ends. It says, Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This new indwelling Spirit will come into your life 
as you are immersed in water. These verses are succinct in teaching us how we place our faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And have this indwelling Holy Spirit for power to become more and more like Jesus. So would you pray for me as we prepare for baptism? Father, it's in this moment that we're reminded again of your presence. That we place our faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That we receive forgiveness of our sin. And that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for power to become more and more like Jesus. Father, it excites us every time that we see someone commit their lives to Christ. As they, as they seek to follow you. It doesn't matter whether they're young, whether they're middle-aged, or whether they're old. This is a new beginning. This is the place where they put their faith in you and are reminded again of your great work. And so, Lord, in these next few minutes, as we worship, as we watch you in action, we pray your blessing. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.